go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 12. Um, if you're new here, I'm Josh. I'm one of the leaders. Uh, we have this simple phrase that we use to describe what we're up to as a church here at Van City, which is practicing the way of Jesus together. See, we believe that the way of Jesus is more than a worldview. It's more than a box that you check when you fill out a survey. It's more than basic belief in God. It's more than church attendance or membership. The way of Jesus is a lifestyle. It's a, a way of life, and it is all-encompassing in nature. Jesus is our teacher, and we are his disciples or apprentices. And the goal of any apprentice of Jesus is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. The way we are living that out as a family is by taking on the very practices of Jesus, what's often called in uh, the Christian tradition spiritual disciplines, which are things like reading the Bible, prayer, fasting, healing, and on down the list. And together, in smaller groups spread out across the city called Van City Communities, we're actually working our way through these practices. Every two months, we begin a new practice taken from the lifestyle and the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. We unpack that practice here a bit on Sunday evenings, and then we go out into the communities uh, the following week to give it a shot together using a practice-based curriculum. Now, we've just completed several weeks of the ancient practice of silence and solitude in your communities. And I want to encourage every community, if, if you've just finished that, uh, the practices together, before you jump into the next practice, make space to have a conversation about how you guys are going to continue silence and solitude, how you're going to make it an ordinary aspect of your apprenticeship to Jesus, not unlike prayer or reading your Bible and so on. Like Jesus, we want to make silence and solitude a regularly occurring motif in our life rhythm, not just that interesting thing we did for a couple of months before we moved on. Make sense? Great. Tonight, we're going to take a short break from our ongoing study of the Gospel of Matthew to discuss the next practice that we're going to unpack together in our communities, which is something called dealing with your past. Uh, I grew up in southeast Georgia. I was taught that to answer someone older, to my, older than myself or a stranger required a sir or a ma'am, right? Um, and, and to do so, with, to answer someone older than you or a stranger without saying sir or ma'am was something like spitting in their face. And that's only slightly hyperbolic. It was hugely disrespectful in uh, the culture in which I was raised. Now, I've done much to reject or to dismiss most of my Southern heritage, um, but to this day, uh, I answer strangers and folks my parents' age with sir and ma'am uh, as the default setting, uh, at least most of the time. Uh, my friend Peter uh, was just telling me earlier this week, he's a Russian fellow, and just the other day he was describing the way in which he's noticed that exchanges that may seem like gruff or short or unfriendly to some American context are, at least in some instances, altogether ordinary in some of the Russian social settings that he's used to. So the residual Southern in me absolutely collides with the residual Russian and some of my friends when, fascinatingly, neither one of us are harboring any ill will and we're both just going on our ordinary modes of communication and social life. All because I grew up one way and they grew up another way. And my point is, time-tested, and it factors in ways big and small into each of our lives, and that is that our present has been, to some extent, shaped by our past. The person that we are today has been shaped to some degree by the part of our story that lingers behind us, your family, the culture in which you were raised, your nationality or your ethnicity, your religious heritage, the trauma that lurks in your personal and family history, uh, abuse or death 
or rape, accidents, divorce. We've also been shaped by uh, noteworthy milestones, the formative moment that shaped your vocation, the year that your family moved from one city to another, the, the movie or novel that inspired you in a moment that you'll never forget. So in varying degrees of density, you can trace a figurative line from the aspects of your personhood now backward to certain instances and seasons of your past. Uh, your lifestyle decisions, your habits, your ideas of God, your ideas of other people, the world itself, what matters a ton to you, what matters very little, what compels you as a person, this imaginary line connects today to yesterday. And this line will always trace back to your family of origin. If you've ever been through therapy, then you know well enough that sessions one and two typically deal heavily with your family of origin. And there's a reason for that. Uh, who you are, the moment you sit down across from your psychologist or counselor, has been pieced together with blocks both good and bad by the family setting in which you were raised and by the story of your extended family, reaching backward in time two, three, even four generations prior. And believe it or not, there's a real scientific and biblical evidence for such a time frame. Uh, one noteworthy professor I read about uh, this week, a professor of psychiatry and neuroscience, her name's Rachel Yehuda, is a pioneer in this developing science called epigenics. And in one fascinating study, Dr. Yehuda's team discovered not only that the DNA of Holocaust survivors had been affected in a quantifiable way, but that those same survivors had passed on those very unique genetic effects to their children's DNA and their grandchildren's DNA, meaning that the outrageous trauma endured by this, these survivors had affected the genetic makeup on a cellular level in a scientifically measurable way, and that those effects had been passed down generation to generation. And we're now able to trace on a uh, molecular level what we know from psychology and the scriptures before it. When something isn't confronted in one generation, it could continue on to the next and to the next. You know, num numerous scientific studies have concluded that even a susceptibility to alcoholism or drug addiction, dependence, it can be traced genetically and can permeate ensuing generations. And fascinatingly uh, and tragically, most of us reach adulthood without having confronted these effects uh, of our family of origin whatsoever. Most of us have lacked the resources or the wherewithal to even begin such a feat, and others of, others of us will do just about anything to avoid it altogether. But tonight I'm going to argue that until we resolve to stare bravely into our past, we run the risk of replicating many of its tragedies. Because the effects of your family of origin have a bearing on your discipleship to Jesus that is difficult to overstate. The way in which you work to find your place in God's kingdom, to discover your potential, to discover your vocation, to know God and to be known by God, to live in community with other people, all of these things have been affected by your past and by your family of origin. Sometimes that's great and it works out to your favor and other times decidedly less so. But whether for better or for worse, the state of your emotional health, hear me on this, the state of your emotional health is always tethered to your spiritual state of being, as it were. Meaning, your spiritual maturity will not be able to drastically outgrow your emotional maturity. Which, of course, explains why so many of us have known men and women who know the scriptures, who pray every day, who are involved at church, and are yet some of the grumpiest, most passive-aggressive, uh, stressed-out people that we've ever met. In his influential book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro writes this, 
In emotionally healthy churches, people understand how their past affects their present ability to love Christ and others. They've realized from Scripture and life that an intricate, complex relationship exists between the kinds of persons they are today and their past. Numerous external forces may shape us, but the family we've grown up in is the primary and, except in rare instances, the most powerful system that will shape and influence who we are. That to say, discipleship to Jesus is about working toward both spiritual and emotional maturity and health. And to do that, we have to address the past. We need to evaluate inherited patterns, both good and bad, passed on from our families and cultures. And when we identify patterns that align with the way of Jesus, we celebrate that and we continue in them with great enthusiasm. But when we identify patterns that do not align with the way of Jesus, we must do the hard work of eliminating them from our family story, that we might fully embrace our apprenticeship to Jesus and enjoy what he called life to the fullest. Now, before we move any further on this, I want to acknowledge my realization that thus far I am losing some of you. I realize that. Um, if so, perhaps some of you that are squirming in your chairs fit somewhere into three kind of broad cate categories. No one likes to be put in a box, but here you go. Some of you, I think, are wondering why dwell on the past. After all, if, if trauma, if guilt, if shame, if sin and abuse all lurk within the ominous closet of the past, why return to it? Doesn't the New Testament speak a great deal about moving on? Didn't Paul himself write in Philippians that he was uh, forgetting what lies behind and rushing, pressing forward to what was ahead? Well, uh, to begin with, Paul is actually uh, abandoning a past of power and high standing in context. Uh, as a Pharisee, you know, Paul belonged to a small sect of religious and political elite, and he enjoyed wealth and privilege. So after encountering the resurrected Jesus, Paul opts for a life of abject poverty and persecution and constant emotional turmoil. If it, it's a past of luxury that Paul is abandoning, and that's, if, that, if that's the sense that you want to live in the now, then go nuts, by all means. But your family of origin or your triumphs and tragedies of your story, the trauma, these things simply cannot be forgotten in the simplistic sense. They are written into your genetic code. And you can run, but you can't hide, as the expression goes. Now, others of you perhaps may be thinking, well, that's fine. Yeah, the past, whatever. But my past is fine and dandy. Thank you very much. Um, and I get it. For the most part, I would describe my upbringing as pretty darn good. Loving parents, uh, cushy living, support, love. We even had a go-kart, man. <laughs> it was nice. To look back on it now, it seems very crude, but at the time, it was impressive. In fact, it was just like a, a flat plank of metal with a bench seat and wheels. I don't know, at this point, I wonder if my dad made it or something, but it had no railing on the side or any, like, and Patrick and I would just uh, we, we had like on, you know, lived in the rural southeast, so we'd spin around this giant makeshift go-kart behind the garage in, you know, no shirt and jorts uh, <laughs> or like oversized Coca-Cola t-shirt and like he'd turn a sharp corner, one of us would go whirling out like a tumbleweed and then we'd come back to pick him up, start riding again. So who do you think could win in a fight, Hulk or Wolverine? You know, that kind of thing. Um, so all in all, not so bad. But listen to me on this. Even with a childhood and an adolescence lifted from like a sentimental 80s sitcom, every family experiences a certain level of dysfunction uh, because they have people in them. 
You get that, right? When we put together, uh, or when we put people through our basics class, Cam knows this well enough, or when we do the, the Van City community training, one thing that we tell folks again and again is to prepare for the inevitable conflict, right? Prepare for the inevitable discord, because it is an inevitability. And why? Because the community has people in it, you know? And that's the way that it works. And listen to me, as, as a result of that inevitable dysfunction in your family of origin, which is present in even the happiest of families, you have been affected. And you may not realize it, or maybe you do, but this hits me personally uh, uh, with a particular note of grief. I have two kids. Um, I would love to think that they will escape my parenting with only the positive effects in tow. Uh, but then again, I know myself. And uh, so now I want to even now begin to teach Beck and Isla to one day look back on Abby and myself, on the environment in which they were raised, on the city and the culture, and to confront the effects that these things have had on both of their lives and their personhood, both the good things and the bad things. And I want them to identify the things that line up with the way of Jesus and continue them on in their family story. And I want them to identify the things that do not line up with the way of Jesus and do the hard work of correcting them. Because honoring your, your mother and your father in no way entails ignoring their shortcomings. Um, to do so, frankly, would require a certain amount of delusion on our part. Hopefully, both you and your parents understand that neither party has been perfect in your unfolding family story. Um, honoring your parents, honoring your story, means taking all the good from your upbringing and applying it to the next generation with incredible intentionality, um, while deliberately leaving behind the mistakes of the past. Now, finally, last group of people, I suspect that some of you know full well that you have a tremendous need to address your past, and you just don't feel ready to do it. Um, and I, I think I understand that as well. For some of you, even a passing glance at your yesteryear is an emotionally exhausting experience. Um, and please hear me, I am in no way meaning to heap pressure or guilt or fear onto an already difficult relationship with your past. But listen, if you don't deal with it ever, it continues to follow you. The past is uh, sort of relentless in that way. The emotional pain, the anxiety that stirs when your mind returns to some corner. Um, you can smother it with distraction if you like. You can watch more TV or travel or socialize or look at porn or drink or smoke pot or whatever. You can even bury it with good things. You can read more Bible. You can go to more church. You know, you can um, spend more time in community. But it's still there, and it's still waiting to be dealt with. If you do find yourself in the general vicinity of these three sort of objections, why dwell on the past? My past is just fine, or it's too hard. Then my gentle request for you this evening and as we begin these practices is to keep an open mind and just try to come along with us. Um, let's go to the scriptures, go to the Holy Spirit together and see what we can find. At least give it a shot. Can we do that together? Can we attempt it? All right, great. All right, let me give you guys a bit of a roadmap for the next few weeks of teaching and practice. We're going to spend four weeks on the teaching side of things and the same amount of weeks on, a particular, on this particular practice in our Van City community. So week one, which begins now, is about something called generational sin. So if I haven't lost you already, get excited. Um, we're, we're, hanging, we're heading somewhere redemptive. Hang in there. Week two is about relational patterns. And week three is about something called relational scripts. We'll get to that when we get there. And then finally, we'll end with a bit on generational blessings. So it's going somewhere positive. You just got to make it the four weeks, I guess. Um, 
All right, now, I did tell you to open your Bibles for a reason. Let's get to Genesis chapter 12 and do our best to outline a sort of broad strokes biblical theology of this concept that we call generational sin. Let's read Genesis 12, beginning with the very first verse. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is a huge moment in the story of the scriptures. Uh, at this point in the story, Yahweh has created a good world. It's gone awry because of evil, but he's not given up on his dream of having humanity as his partners and bringing the world into peace and what the Bible calls shalom. So God calls this obscure fellow called Abram at this point to act as an agent of God's plan for redemption, meaning God wants to fix things, but he wants to do it through humanity. So you've got to start somewhere, apparently, and that somewhere turns out to be this dude. Abram. And things start out well enough. Abram is into the whole redemption plan thing. He gives up everything to follow Yahweh in obedient trust. Um, it seems as though the guy is awesome. Skip down to chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. So when Abraham, uh, Abram at this point came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman, and when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his, Pharaoh's palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abraham acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. It's like a bonus at the end. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of, Abr because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, what have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me this was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Now, just to be clear, Abram demands that his wife lie about their relationship to protect himself while putting her at potential risk. Uh, then he hands her over to another man and he enjoys the luxury that that act affords him in the process. Is this cool or not cool? No, it's not good. It's, it's heinous, just to be clear. Truly reprehensible. But after Abraham is outed, surely he'll learn from his mistakes. Turn over to chapter 20. The story goes on. Genesis chapter 20. When you get there, let's read beginning with the very first verse. Now, same guy called Abraham at this point moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarai, now Sarah, she's my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you're as good as dead because of the woman you've taken. She's a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she's my sister? And didn't she also say, he's my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I've kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. He will pray for you, and, they, and you will live. But if you do not return to her, you may be sure that you and all who belongs to you will die. Dire stakes is what they go. So at this point, you go, what, what the heck, Abraham? What the heck are you doing? This, is, this very particular sin repeats itself with astounding specificity. And now if you know the story or the song, uh, Abraham goes on to have some sons. 
right? So won't you stand with me as we sing that song together? <laughs> I thought, what if someone actually stood up? Wouldn't that be awesome? I was then prepared to encourage them to sing it while we watched. Now, you guys didn't fall for it. That's fine. So Abraham has two sons to begin with, with, with two different women. It's a tragic story, and it gets worse because one son in particular, Isaac, is more loved than the other son. Turn over to chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26. When you get there, let's read beginning with the first verse. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine in Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham, which we read a little, a little while ago. I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commandments, my decrees, and my instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister. Because he was afraid to say she's my wife, he thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she's beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. This is weird. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, She's your wife. Why did you say she's my sister? And Isaac answered him, Because I thought I might lose my life and on account of her. Then Abimelech said, This is getting old. Um, now, then Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you would, have been brought, you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, Anyone who harms this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. What the heck? The very same sin, very same place, and with none other than the same king at this point. I mean, good or bad, you begin to pity this guy. It's like the whole fool, fool me once thing, you know. Now, the story goes on. Isaac has two sons, uh, this time twins, Jacob and Esau. Again, there's enmity between the sons, and again, because one of them, Jacob, is the favorite. Turn over to Genesis 27. Let's read beginning in verse 18. He went to his father and said, My father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my games so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? In context, you know, there's this whole thing with the game. It takes a while. You, you'll get it. Anyway, the Lord gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near me so I can touch you, my son, and know whether you really are my son Esau or not. His, his eyesight's very bad. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. He's, it's a disguise. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau? He asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him. He ate, and he brought some wine, and he drank. Isaac's son, Jacob, is depicted here as a, uh, I don't know how to describe it, a big fat liar. Let's call it that. In fact, um, his Hebrew name, Yechav, actually means deceiver, which is something of a bummer. I went to uh, Israel last year, and my tour guide was named Yechav. And I just called him deceiver. It was this affectionate little thing we had. Uh, the same spirit of selfish deception has carried on like this sinister heritage in the family. So please, God, let this be the end of the story. Spoiler alert, it isn't. Turn over one last time, Genesis 37. And let's read Genesis 37, verse 2, when we get there. This is the account of Jacob's family line. 
Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So Jacob now has sons, and here we go again with the favoritism, this time one against everyone else. And the story goes on, and I'm sure some of you guys are familiar with it. Joseph, the preferred son, is out one day in a field. His brothers overtake him. They have this debate over whether or not to kill him, and eventually they sell him into slavery. How, uh, how will they communicate this to their father? Skip down to verse 31. Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes. He put on a sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph into Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So, shocker. How do the sons deal with this thing they've done? They lie. They lie a ton. And, uh, I'm, you know, it stands to reason it went on for years and years. I'm sure I don't have to ask, but do you see at this point the pattern that carries on in Abraham's family? Abraham's sin, then Isaac's sin, then Jacob's sin, then his son's sin. Four generations of deceit. Abraham deliberately lies about his wife. He puts her in danger. He hands her over to another man while enjoying the great wealth that results from his lie. Then Jacob lies. Then his sons lie. There's repeated misogyny and mistreatment of women. There's sexual addiction. There's favoritism. Uh, one son over another again and again. Isaac over Ishmael. Jacob over Esau. Joseph over everyone. Resulting in relentless sibling rivalry and familial dissonance. In the story, Ishmael flees from his family. Jacob steals from Esau, then flees from his family. And Joseph is sold into slavery for years. And tragically, specific sin is permeating the family line passed down from generation to generation. And to build out our biblical theology beyond this single familiar, uh, familial story, let's turn over one more time, Exodus 34, before we end tonight. Go to Exodus 34. In context, this story we're about to read, or this excerpt from the story we're about to read, unfolds as Moses is atop Mount Sinai. And we find him in the midst of this incredible, climactic moment in which God's proper name is revealed for the first time. It's huge. Uh, in ancient Hebrew thinking, a name was much more than like a, a title someone is known by. A name was a revelation of someone's true identity, someone's character. And what we're about to read is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. So the authors of Scripture take this to be of tremendous importance. Let's read Exodus 34, beginning with verse 6. And he, God, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet... He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, let's be honest. That begins beautifully, right? But for many of us, when we arrive at that last sentence, we go, wait, what? God is going to punish kids for things that their great-grandparents did? And uh, we don't have time to unpack the, the complexity of that confusing sentence tonight, at least not all of it. But for now... 
let me just say that it simply can't mean what it appears to mean from a decontextualized English translation that basically that God punishes kids for things their grandparents did. One simple reason is that later in the Torah, God expressly forbids exactly that from happening. He says the opposite. But there is something stark and a bit dire about that last line, regardless of how you read it. It sounds heavy, right? So what does it mean? Well, there are layers to it. First layer is that a parent's sin has very real consequences on their children and on their grandchildren and on their great-grandchildren. In fact, that really scary-sounding line can be translated, the consequences of the sins of the father are passed down to the third and fourth generation. Most people know this by way of logic or sadly by way of experience. Divorce is an easy example. Adultery is another one. When parents sin, their children suffer consequences. It's an inevitability. But the second layer is that sin also runs in the family. And we're now able to see, uh, as we're now able to see under a microscope, sin, not unlike ability, the ability to roll your tongue or the color of your eyes, is passed on genetically. As a human being, you begin with an innate disposition that is tragically bent away from the way of Jesus. And the uniqueness of your particular bent is formed, at least in part, by your family line, by genetics. But, and listen to this, the third and final layer is that you can escape the sin of your heritage. History does not have to repeat. And it's easy to miss in English, but there's actually this fascinating juxtaposition of numbers happening here in Exodus 34 in which God is actually creating this really beautiful contrast. The word generations isn't actually present in Hebrew. It's just added to make sense of the idea. And this passage is sort of built like a stanza of poetry. So scholars argue that whatever concept follows the first number, which is thousands, should also follow the next number, which is uh, the third and fourth. Meaning the passage could be translated one of two ways. It could be maintaining love to thousands of generations, but punishing only to the third and fourth generation. Or it could be translated maintaining love to thousands, but punishing to the third and the fourth, period. The point being that God's love and mercy are outrageously bigger than his judgment. Or as one author later puts it, mercy triumphs over judgment. You can escape the cycle of generational sin. Even in the serious, horrific reality of the sin of your family line, God is prepared with mercy and a way out. You can escape sin that has been done by you. You can escape sin that has been done against you, and you can escape sin that has been done around you. The powerful darkness of that cycle can be destroyed. And yes, our present has been shaped by our past, but it does not have to determine our future, nor the future of your children, nor the future of their children, but it has to be dealt with. Now, to end tonight, how do we begin the process of breaking free? The first step is to actually identify the generational sin specific to your family and to your life. Obviously, uh, we can't address what we refuse to acknowledge. In order to do that, the practices curriculum will guide you through something called a genogram, which is essentially a visual map of your family line specifically intended for the identification of those unique patterns, both good and bad. Another part of my southern upbringing I've learned over the past few years of my adulthood is that in the context in which I was raised, mental and emotional health were not ideas thought worthy of entertaining or discussing, right? Uh, therapists and counselors were specifically for the criminally insane. 
um, and the past and trauma and patterns of sin, these things aren't really polite, palatable topics of discussion, even in the context of family or community. And sure, this is no longer my paradigm whatsoever, but I see now that it has shaped my life involuntarily. Um, and I can leave that alone and I can power through it. I no longer believe that stuff. I'm sure it has no effect on me whatsoever. Or I can drag those skeletons from the closet of my personal history out, into the, out from the dark and into the light and allow the Spirit to speak over them. These will have power no longer. Not for me, not for my kids, not for their kids. So over the next few weeks, our hope is that you'll work through this thing called a genogram. You'll write it out. You'll do listening prayer. You'll process with your community. And we hope that it will be the beginning of healing and freedom in your story and in the story of your family to come. This week, with your community, you'll go to practicingtheway.org to begin the next four weeks of practices. If you're not in a community yet or if you're listening to this teaching on the podcast from elsewhere in the world, but you still want to get started, you want to do this with us, please, by all means, go for it. This round of practices is a bit different in that we've assembled a genogram workbook that you'll want to download and print before your next community night this week. And there's also this helpful little video that will guide you through the process of crafting your genogram. It's a pretty involved thing. Now listen. This can be a complicated process. I get it. If you're not yet in a community or if your community is just absolutely brand new and sharing every detail of your complicated family history sounds a bit complicated, a bit daunting right now, don't give up on this idea. Don't dismiss it altogether. You could also make your way through the workbook with a close friend um, that you feel safe with. You could work through it with a family member you feel safe with or a mentor, a counselor, or a therapist. Um, and then you can debrief sort of the more broad strokes in your community uh, if that works. If you're interested, you can write to vancity at vancity.church and we'd be happy to send you a list of recommended counselors and therapists both in Vancouver and the greater Portland metro area. But I do want to stress the importance of working through this in a community setting, even if it's you and one other person. Um, whether or not you're personal with just one or two people or you're personal with your big old group of 15, uh, or, or maybe you're personal with just one person and then you're sort of general with the big group saying, I'm doing it, I'm right there with you guys. This is something you do not want to do alone. Addressing past events that are potentially painful or difficult or tragic all by yourself creates a very vulnerable place in which the enemy loves to sidle up and whisper lies about your past and whisper lies about your future. So surround yourself with people that are prepared to speak the truth over you and into your life. And finally, I want us to frame this practice correctly. This is not an occasion for blame or bitterness or cynicism. The idea is not to revel in the mistakes of your family and say, here, you know, this is why I'm so lousy. It's because my grandparents did this. Um, this is not an exercise in resentment. The idea is to find new compassion for your family and for yourself. So this is not about allocating blame, but about breaking sinful patterns to give yourself and your family new hope for the future by identifying where those patterns may have come from. And I realize, absolutely, we are a young church. We're still finding our shape. Believe me, I, this, this could have been a lot easier if we just skipped over this thing and waited till everyone knew each other for 10 years or something like that. But I do believe that a healthy church works to usher its greater family into areas they would not explore left to their own devices. Uh, otherwise, what the heck do you need us for? Uh, you know, as I said from this teaching's outset, some of you may feel prepared, and this may be even curious about this whole thing. Uh, others of you decidedly less so. And I'm fairly certain we could spend our time crafting some inspiring pat on the back 
for you tonight. Well, Cameron could do that, maybe not me. Or we could have some thoughtful TED Talk type of thing. Or we can enjoy our coffee and songs and leave without the slightest change in our innermost being because it's easy, it's not difficult. But we want to learn what it means to follow Jesus together, what it means to practice the way of Jesus together. When that means pat on the back, awesome. That's easy for us. Um, when it means intellectual TED Talk, hey, that works out wonderfully for me personally. But if dealing with the past is essential in emotional and spiritual health and maturity, and if our apprenticeship to Jesus depends on emotional and spiritual health and maturity, then this is something we have to do. This is a dark hallway we must explore, and Jesus will go with us. We have been adopted into God's family. Part of our discipleship to Jesus is relearning what it means to belong to a family, specifically to God's family. And I'm sure I don't have to tell most of you that such an endeavor absolutely requires us to address what our lives have told us thus far about family in general. How you relate to God the Father is absolutely crafted in some measure by how you related to your own father, for better or for worse. And God is a gentle and kind and caring father. By his own self-description, he is abounding in love and faithfulness. He's compassionate and caring. His judgment is so small compared to his incredible mercy. And he will go with us into the dark, and he brings with him a light that we do not have by ourselves. So with that in mind, would you guys mind just standing up with me as we invite the Spirit to come and speak into our time this evening and our time together in the practices over the next few weeks?